everyone. I'm Susie Sevier. And I'm Michael Barnhart. Welcome to the Adventures of a Real Estate Investor podcast, where we interview industry experts and chat with them about their passions and how they are leveraging real estate investing to create an impact in their world. What impact do you want to make? Did you know there are almost 8 billion people on this planet? What if each of us started with ourselves, with our family, in our community? All we have to do is start with a manageable 1% action every day. The effect of those billions of 1% gestures would be astronomical. This is your place to reflect and believe. Join us every week to start cultivating those ideas on the impact that you want to make in your world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Adventures of a Real Estate Investor. I'm Susie. And I'm Michael, and we're excited you joined us for this adventure. So today's great, great guest is Jerome Myers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Michael, Susie, you guys are such a ball of energy. I love hanging out with you too. <laughs> Thanks. And we love hanging out with you. So thank you so much for being here. And just to let the listeners know, like Michael and I actually initially met you at one of Brian Briscoe's meetups, which is great because majority of the people we've met was because of Brian Briscoe's meetups. So I'm just, that was like life changing within itself. I'm just really thankful for that. But actually I attended a late night meetup and that was with Lawrence Letty and you were the speaker at that one. And it was all about your 2021 goals and like the transformation of that all. And right there, like when I heard you speak, you know, cause that's midnight for me. So sometimes it's hit or miss if I pay attention. When you started talking, it was like, whoa, why have I not like dove deeper with this individual yet? I am missing out on life. You know, it was like huge. Yes. And I mean, from there, like I've just been following you and I love everything that you put out. Like you make a huge impact on me. You make a difference. I love your words. I love what you're doing. And so thank you so much for being here. All right. We can end the podcast now. I got what I came here for. <laughs> no, you're too far too kind. I appreciate that feedback though. It means the world to me because that's why I'm here. I'm here to try to make the world a better place. You know, one of my morning affirmations is everyone I come in contact with will be better because of our interaction. And so for you to give me that type of feedback gives me confirmation that I'm at least living that out for at least one person in this beautiful big blue earth. And Nailed it. Michael, I appreciate you co-signing it, my brother. So yeah, I mean, I'm just grateful to be here and happy to serve however I can. I really hope you guys hit the new and noteworthy. You know, we'll be talking about this day forever as, you know, you guys have one of the hugest podcasts in the country. Well, I guess the world since you're across the country. <laughs> No, thank you so much for that. And then Jerome, could you please share with our listeners your background and why you started investing in real estate? Man, so this question is always interesting because I never really understand how I'm going to answer it when I get asked it, right? And so the typical path I go down is I'm a corporate America dropout. I had the fortune of building a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. And my reward for that was laying people off, not once, but two years in a row. That first time I did it, I got a phone call at 4.55 on Christmas Eve, and it went something like this. Hey, Jerome, we're going to lay them off. Said, what do you mean we're going to lay them off? We just made 30% profit margins. Of course, we're not going to do anything like that. That doesn't make any sense. Like, no, that's what we're going to do. And so I start to argue and debate and deliberate. And it's like, Jerome, I'm not doing that. It's five o'clock. I'm going to go spend the rest of the year with my family. I'll talk to you next year. And that's the decision. And you got to figure out the rest or somebody can do it for you. And I spend the next seven 
to 10 days trying to figure out how I can make the process objective. It was my first time being the axe man. And I just hated myself. I hated what I'd been forced to do. And I'll put air quotes around forced because I could have said no, right? I could have just exited and decided that I wasn't going to participate in the process. But I thought that I was going to learn something by going through it. And so I went through it. Promised myself I would never do it again. Fast forward to Thanksgiving the next year, I'm doing the same thing. And at that point, I said, okay, yeah, I'm not going to learn anything. Not back to back like this. I'm out. And so when it started knocking on the doors at banks and the goal there was to buy a multifamily building. Back when I was in college, a buddy of mine and I, Duran, were sitting on a stoop and we started doing some math. I guess that's what engineering students do in their free time. And I was paying $3.95. He was paying $3.95. We both had two roommates. So, you know, $1,200, $2,400. We multiplied it across the complex. The guy was making $700,000 a year. They're like, wait, 700000 We just need seventy. Like, if we had $70,000 a year, we'd be okay. And, of course, we didn't understand expenses or anything. But the thing was, we never saw the guy we never talked to. And so it was like, well, how can we do what he's doing? You know, I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. By the way, Michael, you know, thank you for your service. And that just kind of precluded that I could actually own multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. Like the things didn't compute, right? You're a civil servant. So of course you just kind of do your time and then you get your pension. That's the way it goes, right? And this whole idea of trading time for money or not trading time for money was something that became very interesting at that point. I just didn't have a path to get there. And so finish school, get the degree, start working, get to this culmination point where it's like, okay, I know that I don't want to do that anymore. Let me go back to this thing that I thought I wanted to do, but I just didn't know how because I've got some money and some credit now, right? So the banks are going to be excited to lend to me. And they weren't. They all told me no, all 10. They're like, why don't you want to give me a million dollars to buy this building? Well, because you don't have any experience. What do you mean? I got an MBA. I got a project management professional certification. I got a PE. Like, what do you want? It's like, uh, we want you to actually execute this business plan with a property of similar size. Or have somebody on your team that's done it before. And that was the big mistake that I made over the course of that journey. I hadn't grown my network at all to find somebody who had done the thing that I wanted to do. I still didn't know anybody who owned multifamily real estate, even though that's what I said that I wanted to do, right? I wasn't intentional in my networking. And so I had to pivot. And so I started fixing and flipping, right? Because I still wanted to be in real estate. And that, and I'm sitting on the stoop of a 1920s build and the $90,000 rehab guy pulls up in his white Dodge Ram. Hey, bud. Hey, uh, can I check out your finishes? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm proud. My chest is poked out now. Somebody wants to check out my house. Like I'm doing the thing now. And sure enough, he walks in. It's like, you tuck the wall out. You put that gooseneck faucet on the island sink. And the granite looks amazing. And the tile in the bathroom's pretty. And look, you refinished these historic hardwood floors. He's getting ready to leave. And he stops in the door and he says, hey, you know anything about that building behind the Chimbo Mart? Yeah, the 23-unit apartment building? Absolutely. I'm going to make an offer on that later today. Wait, wait, wait. You're the guy I've been looking for, right? Ah. Obviously have experience if you're going to make an offer. He's like, yeah, I got, uh, we own a little bit. I was like, okay, well, the banks told me I need a person with experience in order to do my first deal. You're that guy. Well, what are you going to bring to the table? We'll figure that out. Just don't leave me out of the deal. I tried to buy that one four or five months ago. What are you going to bring to the table? I don't know. We don't need to worry about that. Just don't leave me out of the deal. We'll figure something out. And so he shakes his head. He walks off, hops in his truck, drives off. And I just knew, because this was Wednesday, Friday, he was going to call me, right? Like, we got the deal. We're ready to rock and roll. Friday came and went. Nothing happened. Monday, next week, 
nothing. Tuesday, still looking at my phone like it's got a ring, right? Friday comes and goes, still no ring. The next Tuesday, boom, I get a phone call, but not from him. Guy I used to lend money to when I was in corporate America. And he says, hey, I just got the opportunity to be a general contractor on the project that we talked about five or six months ago. I said, well, what? okay. He said, but I told him I'm not willing to do it without you. And so I got my seat at the table. He brought me back into the deal. We put the brokers together. And so the reason why I tell this story, right, the part that actually matters out of all of this is a caption in the paper. And it says something along the lines of rising real estate investor partners with proven entities to rehab Churchill townhomes. Deeper into the article, it says, and it's a quote from me, the property's been an eyesore, pretty dilapidated. We're looking to restore it. And that's been our business model, right? We've gone in and bought things that were not the best property in nice neighborhoods and made the capital investment in order to bring them up to the standard of the neighborhood. And said in real estate speak, we like to buy C assets and be native. And that's because we believe that we can make an impact with our investment. And those are the only deals that we will do. If we feel like there's opportunity to improve the community and make money, then it checks the two boxes that are important for us. We won't do a deal where we just make impact because we're running a business. We won't do a deal where we just make money because we want to make actual impact with the investments that we make. And so we need those two boxes checked before we do any deal. And so hopefully that kind of brings everybody up to speed on how we got here and why we're here. No, absolutely. And you know what I like love even about that story is that the general contractor was like, I'm not doing this, you know, without Jerome, like that speaks volumes about you and what you've done, like to impact his life, right? So even thinking of it in that standpoint, like how the ripple can happen at one point of your life, and you might not feel it for a little bit, but it comes back, you know, so like every day for taking those steps to just like do 1% for somebody else, like it all comes back full circle, even though we don't know it. We don't know when it'll happen, but we know that when it does, it'll create like this like beautiful masterpiece and we just have to follow the rest, you know, like, and that's amazing because so many people don't see like impact in that way, you know, like they want like a lot of instant gratification, but it doesn't happen that way. Right. It's like that slow process of when everything starts moving, you know, that's when it makes it's like beautiful, graceful entrance. 1000%. Susie, the way I would say it is there's no substitute for being a good person, right? I think people try to shortcut that process and don't actually focus on, like, be a good person and great things will happen. I promise. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. So one thing, though, also is that, like, you never let go of wanting to make this, like, dream of yours happen, right? Like, it was something that you knew you wanted. And, you know, what's funny is, like, kind of how it shifted, right? Because everybody sees, like, the dream life of corporate America. Like, that means you made it. Like, why would you ever want to leave that, you know? But experiencing what you experienced to leave something that everybody thinks they want to go into something brand new is huge. So like, how did that shift go? I mean, I know with the layoff happening, not once, but twice, like that's pretty like detrimental to someone's soul. Not everybody's, but most people's, you know, who have one. So like, what was that (laughs) shift to actually get there? Like, how did you decide like, no, I've made this commitment to myself and I'm going to do it because a lot of people don't actually prepare themselves to take control of their lives. So like, what was that push? What did you have to do for yourself to do that? Yeah. So I guess there's a tactical approach and then there's the actual mental piece. 
So the tactical was, of course, save money so that you can survive outside of the addiction of the paycheck, right? And so, you know, what I recommend now that I've started helping other people figure out how to do this is 12 months worth of expenses. And you really need to understand what the expenses are, needs versus wants, and get clear about what you actually will have when you make the transition. I think two, get an access to credit lines so that you have access to capital because once you leave, you know, you're probably dead in the water for two to three years until you've got some meaningful tax returns that you can show to institutions that prove that you're actually making money. And then probably the third thing and one that most people overlook is having conversations with everybody that's going to be impacted by your decision, right? A lot of people say, I'm going to do this. And then after they do it, they let everybody know instead of letting people say, hey, well, I know that you want to do it. Here are the things that I'm worried about if you do do it. And then crafting a plan to mitigate those risks or tell them, hey, I don't actually value the risk that you're placing on it. And so I'm not going to do anything. But there is something to be said for giving people the opportunity to have their voice heard when you're making this plan because you're weird. Right. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. When you decide that you're going to veer off the path that's trodden by the vast majority of the world, you're weird. <laughs> and everybody's going to wonder if you're having some type of midlife crisis or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> and so give them the opportunity to have the conversation so that they know that you're actually rational and you're not just doing something crazy. So for me, the experience was traumatic. Right. And looking back on it, I didn't eat. I didn't sleep like I had. It ruined the holidays for me up until this very last Christmas that we came around. We were just like, I don't want to celebrate that because I know that some company just laid people off right before this happened for like. And it happens across the country because and across the world, because we're balancing budgets so that we can make our four quarter numbers look great. No question that it just happened. Right. And so I know that this is happening over and over again. And it can be from people who have given their soul to whatever the entity is. Right. They stayed up late. They stayed up till one or two o'clock in the morning doing the work. They got in early. They traveled on their kid's birthday. Like I can go down the list of all the sacrifices that people make only to be thrown away when they just want to handle their financial reporting and get to that nice earnings per share, whatever number they're using as a metric of success or performance for the quarter. So, you know, that was a struggle for me. That's the mental piece was that event was that traumatic. You talked about having a soul if you have a soul. And, you know, on the backside of it, I was like, well, this isn't cool, right? Like, I don't understand how we can do this. It's like, well, Jerome, you know, it should bother you, but it's just business. And I was like, what is it? I'm telling somebody who has bet on me that they have to find another way to feed their family. And I just figured out how to make you $6 million on $20 million of revenue. Right. For me, knowing how many employees we had on the team, and I mean, we went to like 175 at one point, like we could have figured out, from my perspective, some way to use those folks or given them a longer time to offboard instead of, hey, you got two weeks or you got a week and you're done. And that for me, it just felt so, so, so wrong when, you know, I can actually see the books. And so, you know, stack all that up. And what it gets to for me is you have to decide enough is enough, right? And when you have that moment, you decide enough is enough. You have your conversation. You'd be very deliberate in the strategy that you're going to execute. And you don't do what I did, which is try to do something that you don't have the experience to do. And you haven't proved the concept. That's the last piece, right? Before you off ramp, prove the concept and make sure that you can actually do it. I didn't. I went hard and fast. 
And because I went hard and fast, I got a rude awakening because the way that I thought I was going to make money didn't happen immediately. In fact, it didn't happen until almost a year later. And that is tragic for anybody who doesn't have the versatility to figure out another way to create income. Because I think that's the biggest fear of every corporate employee is how do I make money outside of my job? Mm-hmm. Because we're not taught to do that. And everybody's scared to be a salesperson and whatever else. You're not a salesperson if you're solving somebody's problem, right? You're a problem solver. And I think most people fashion themselves as some form of a problem solver. No, absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's just the way that society has tied it to being sales, right? To like push people away. But like to even get to that step, you know, where you tell yourself like, this isn't something I'm going to do again. I've noticed just like in any space, right? Like keeping promises for ourselves is really hard, right? Like saying you're going to do something, then actually following up on it is like a problem with, I don't know, like a lot of societies in general. And How do you think people can get past that? Because like, I mean, I've been in the position too, you know, like I'm done, you know, working two jobs. I never want to do this again, you know? And then for some reason I go right back into working two jobs. And so like moving past that, like keeping promises to yourself, you know, for me personally, it was like detaching my identity from my nine to five. Like my nine to five does not define me as a person and it shouldn't. So like even you, you know, being a coach, like how do you move people past that? Cause that's a huge impact in their lives, being able to remove themselves from what they're doing. Yeah. I think the first question that I like to ask people is when did you define yourself, right? Are you still living out eight-year-old Susie or 22-year-old Susie or 30-year-old Susie? Or, I mean, what age did you decide that this is the path that you're going to go down, right? And is it still serving you, right? Now, it was interesting you said it's hard for you to keep promises to yourself, right? But you'll protect and defend everybody around you right? Michael never worries about whether or not you have his back or if you're going to look over his shoulder to make sure nobody's going to hurt him. He never worries about that. But because you're a giver, you feel like, oh, well, I'll be okay. I can take care of it or somebody else will do it for me. But when you flip that on his head, and it's part of the reason why like our red pill model is based on self-image being the core of it. And then we move up from there. When you decide that you have to take care of you, you're going to defend you. And if you are more accountable to yourself, you keep the promises to yourself, then you can keep it for everybody else. Because at the end of the day, you are moving independent of the world. You're moving in your own world. And what the standard is in your world is higher than anything that the outside world could ask or beg of you. And so for me, it's really hard for me not to keep a promise to myself. It's really hard for me to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and know that I didn't serve people in the way that I should have, right? That bothers me. It makes it hard for me to sleep. So we are often outwardly motivated. We are taught as kids that we need to please other people, right? Instead of this is our standard. As kids, we don't have a standard, right? It's just kind of okay. And other people are pushing us to greatness. They're pushing us to achieve. And a lot of, you know, type A parents or tiger moms are... They hold back (laughs) the love and the affection until the achievement happens. And I don't think that's fair after a certain point, right? Because then we don't feel worthy. We don't feel deserving. We don't feel like we actually are living in this place and space where, you know, 
regardless of what we did for somebody else, we have value or worth. And so that's why the marketers are able to tell us all the things that are wrong with us and why we have to buy the product or why we can't learn how to syndicate on our own. We've got to pay somebody $50,000 or, you know, go down the path on whatever the thing is, right? Because we don't inherently feel like we have the value or worth. But what I can tell you is when people start keeping their promises to themselves, you spin it on your head and it's like, oh yeah, I absolutely have value and worth. Now I may go do this because I realize that this is a shortcoming in you know my knowledge. And so I need somebody else to help speed that process up for me or some other reason, but it's because I decided that there was a gap and you have the answer to a question that I have. And I'm willing to pay you for that because the value associated with it for me, not because you said it was valuable, but because I think it's valuable and I think it's worth this much. And so the transaction makes sense. Absolutely. So I want to back up just like two steps real quick, because I've been quiet because I've been sitting here listening. I've been quietly reflecting on like what you said, like I've heard your story before, but tonight was the first time that I actually like listened. Like, I mean, I listened to it, but like it hit me a different level, right? Because then I was thinking about my childhood, right? So, and the reason why I'm getting to this is because my dad worked for a large corporation, like when I was younger and we were very well off at that point. But then I remember him now like talking about like how he was in a position where he had to continuously fire people over and over and over again, because it kept growing and expanding and removing departments and things like that. And like, it was just weighing on him. And I remember this when I was a child and like you telling that story right now, or like took me back to those memories and like taking it back and I was like, holy crap, like now you being able to express those emotions to me made me feel and understand like the pain what my dad was going through. He ended up leaving because he refused to stop firing people. He refused to fire people. They actually ended up laying him off because of that. And we struggled for well over a decade as a family, like because my dad couldn't get another job with that. He didn't want another supervisor position where he'd, he'd be put in that position to fire people again. He refused to take a job. And because of that, like he had to find, you know, odd jobs here and there. And like he ended up becoming a contractor and like trying to make ends meet for our family and stuff like that. And like he would have rather done that and live that life, like living paycheck to paycheck and making, trying to get food on a table and things like that, then having to negatively impact somebody else's life by laying them off, even though a company is growing and you have to fire somebody because of that. And so like, I don't know, someone's about to bring me into tears right now, like thinking about that and like having you said the same thing, like, and feeling that emotion from you about like having, you know, not negatively impacting those people and not celebrating the holidays now because, you know, people were just laid off before that. Like, that's a huge thing. Like choosing not to have that negative impact. It speaks volume to them. And yeah, and that's why we have you on the podcast talking about it because this is amazing. And I, I never expected to be this emotional when it came to something like this and like struck a chord with me, Jerome. So I appreciate you being very vulnerable and very genuine with this right now. And it's just amazing to speak volumes, like I said, about the, the character that you have and not having a negative impact on people. Yeah, I think the mantra for most medical professionals is first do no harm, right? And so if we're going around hurting other people, then what kind of person are you? Like, that's literally the way I think. And, you know, kind of back to Susie's point about, you know, being accountable to yourself versus, you know, pleasing and getting other people to say, oh, yeah, good job. You know, we say that, well, we couldn't do it or, you know, I had to or they made me. But it's always your choice, right? And, you know, I, I like to use extreme examples to make a point. Like, people will have a gun and maybe somebody will invade their house and they'll say, oh, well, he made me kill him because he came in my house. And it's like, no, I mean, like, you had the choice not to shoot. You just chose to do it. 
it's like, oh, what is me versus him, et cetera. Like we rationalize a lot of things that I think are pretty inhumane for the sake of being okay with it. Even though like deep down in our core, we know we're not okay. Like we know it's not right. And we also know that the people who make the decisions usually are detached. So there's a cognitive dissonance so that you can make a decision that seems less than humane, right? And so this comes back to me in the multifamily space because I walk in every unit for properties that we buy. And anytime I see that an owner is forcing people to live in substandard conditions, whether I wanted to buy the property or not, like really, like truly, like I got to have the property, I immediately go to, I got to have it, right? I've got to get this away from this villain, right? And get it into our hands so that we can make the necessary improvements so that this person can have a reasonable place to live. Now, does that mean that all of our units are perfect? Absolutely not. Are they in good condition when we give them to people? They absolutely are. But, you know, are we in and out of people's units and know what they do to them when they are living there for multiple years? It's impossible from my perspective to do that. Well, it's not impossible, but financially practical, right? And so, but do we want to deliver an amazing unit to a person when they come into our property and live? We do. Do we respond to service tickets and requests for maintenance? We absolutely do. And those are the things that I think are necessary. I'll never forget walking in 200B at one of our properties and the resident and his girlfriend are there and there's, you know, a toddler and she's got two armed babies and they don't, they, she kind of scampers off when we walk into the unit doing our due diligence tour and she goes to the kitchen and she gave one of the babies to her boyfriend and she goes in and she grabs a pot and she dips it in the kitchen sink, takes it to the back, dumps it out, goes back in the kitchen, dumps it out. Like, what's she doing? Oh, the sink doesn't work. They haven't paid their rent, so we're not doing any maintenance until they pay their rent. You can't do that. It's not okay. And so, you know, we took that property. And I mean, eventually we ended up evicting the couple because they didn't pay rent, but they had a working kitchen sink. Like, you just, at the end of the day, even if people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, they're still people. And, you know, there are procedures and processes that you have to go through in order to get them to do the right thing, because everybody's not going to do the right thing. That's part of it. But for us, we always want to make sure that we do the right thing as owners. And this is partially why we do the joint venture model versus syndication. For me, I think about syndications as more of a Fortune 500 company, right, where it's about returning max value to the shareholders, right? People are putting their money in. They want their pref, right? And they don't care how you get it. They want their pref. And, you know, if you're going to be somebody that gets people to re-up into their next deal, you're going to give them the pref. I'd rather just be able to call a meeting with my partners and say, hey, here's what's going on with this unit. Are we evicting them? Are we going to let it ride? And we've had situations where we've let somebody get five, six, seven months behind, and then they come in and they drop all the money on the table in one day and they're caught up. Does that happen all the time? It doesn't. Right. But I know plenty of property managers who will say if a person's more than 60 days behind, they're never going to catch up and you have to evict them. And I have evidence to the contrary. Does it mean that you should change your standard operating procedure for your business? Probably not. But I just know that we've decided to extend grace and offer people opportunity to be on payment plans and so on and so forth. And they didn't have to move and they didn't have to do this, that or the third. 
for me, that's meaningful, right? And my partners, we feel like we get rewarded in ways that we probably wouldn't if we operate our business differently. Does that make it the right way? Probably not, but it makes it the right way for us. And we actually get to have a voice on what happens, right? Because, you know, if I've got three or four partners on this deal and we say, okay, here's what's happening. If there's not a unanimous decision that this is where we're going to go, we've set up the procedures where we can vote and say, all right, where do we want to be? And, you know, is it 60 or 70% of the people have to agree with this? And if they do, then we do it. And if we don't, then we don't. But at least there's a conversation about the specific case to see if there's a way to make it work. And, you know, for me, that's valuable because Although, you know, we see real estate as a subscription model, right? Everybody's got to pay their rent. It's a person's home. It's where they live, right? And it is this place more often than not that they spend the most time. They spend more time there than they do at work. They spend more time than at the store or wherever else they are. And so, and I, I just think about my dad, right? He, he grew up in South Carolina, got moved to New York when he was a teenager. He hated it. He went into the military, Marines in particular, when he was 16 all because he didn't feel like he had a home, right? And so for me, he stunted his career growth so that I always had a home. I was fortunate enough to be a military brat who lived in the same house for 18 years, right? And so, you know, the whole idea though was roots, have a place to live. The majority of people who live at our properties are not renting by choice. They're going to be renters forever, right? That is the path that they're on. And so the opportunity for them to have a place to call home is pretty important for us. And we want to have a community where people want to call it home. Yeah, exactly. Right. Cause it's a basic need. And so once like we provide that and once we create a safe place, like they then can like work on themselves and work on their family instead of taking that step back and being like, okay, scarcity mindset, you know, where's the next place I'm going to live? Will I be able to shelter myself or my children? And what do I do next? So like, when we take that step back and think about it all, it's like, this is something we want to take care of because it is truly important, you know, because once those basic needs are set, they can start thinking like beyond and that's what we want. And that's really what we need for society and for the world. So no, thank you for sharing that story. Cause like that in itself was, you worded it so beautifully. <laughs> and like I no, just thank you so much. So Jerome, unfortunately it's getting towards the end of the show, which brings us to the adventurous four questions. These are four exploratory questions that we ask every guest. So the first question that we ask is where is one place you wish to travel to and why? Yeah. So I trace my ancestry and my folks are from the Yoruba tribe of Nigeria. And so I want to go home. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that like took the breath. That's fantastic. So the second question is, what is the number one thing on your bucket list and how are you leveraging real estate investing to achieve it? Yeah, so when I started thinking about this question, I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to say to this one because the bucket list is so interesting. But, you know, I do know what it is and it's going to sound crazy, but I'll share it anyway. So I want to take my daughters to Egypt so we can ride four wheelers in the Sahara. That's what I want to do. Oh, that's hi. I love it. What do you mean? <laughs> that's phenomenal. And so... The way that I'm leveraging real estate to do that is building what we think is going to be a pretty massive portfolio so that we can decouple the time for money and have the income to allow us to stay there as long as we desire. It's not all that great. I mean, we've been to Egypt before. It's not the most amazing 
place, but the fact that they've been able to do that as much as they like ATVs and so on, I think will be something that they'll never forget. So that's the game. That's really cool. At first, I thought you were going to say ride camels everywhere because that would be cool too. Camels stink, man. They're not as fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So the third question is, what is one piece of advice you have for someone who wants to start passively investing in real estate? Yeah. Know that it's not actually passive, right? That's probably (laughs) the most important piece. Don't think that people actually are making investments that they understand, right? And so there's, you know, accredited and non-accredited and sophisticated investors and all this thing. And I don't think most people are actually sophisticated. I think they saw a thing and they're like, oh yeah, well, I understand it because I know that they pay rent and then I get a check, but there's so Mm -hmm. much more depth to it. And what I fear is that somebody puts money into a deal and they don't actually understand the assumptions associated with the model. And that puts them in a place where they aren't ever going to make money. And they were never in a position where they were going to make money. They just gave their money to somebody who knew how to market well. No, that's true. And thank you for that advice. And then the fourth and final question is, if you had unlimited resources available to you, how would you leave an impact? Unlimited resources. I would make it, I would end home hunger. Like I feel like everybody deserves to have food. And I mean, I guess I should say housing or maybe I should say something else. But I mean, at my core, I do believe that, you know, if hunger solved for, you can probably figure out a lot of others. Absolutely. No, it's very true, right? Because even like the amount of food that we waste, like as societies can end that and that blows my mind in itself. So before we end the show, Jerome, would you mind sharing with our listeners how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, the best place to go is JeromeMyers.co, spelling, last name spellings, M-Y-E-R-S. And you can pick your journey. There's plenty of stuff there. We're in all kinds of things. Love to see you connect with us on the place where it's common for both of us. No, absolutely. And we'll make sure to have that in the show notes. But Jerome, thank you so much, so much for being on the podcast. Like everything that you share, every time I listen to you, it's just breathtaking. So thank you again. It was truly a pleasure. Grateful to be with you both. Talk soon. Awesome. So until next time, explore more adventure awaits. Woo! Thank you so much for listening. Before you start your next adventure of the day, please take a moment to reflect on the impact that you want to make. All of our efforts combined are what make the monumental impacts. We can't do it without you. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, please head over to iTunes and leave us an honest review with one of the great insights you received from the show today. And if you believe a friend, family member, or colleague would find great value in listening, please share our podcast with them. As always, your support means the world to us. Until next time, explore more. Adventure awaits. Woo!